as you look around at society at large. If you've ever been perplexed that there's wickedness that never seems to meet justice, and unrighteousness that seems to go unanswered by every earthly authority, unanswered by any divine reckoning, if you're perplexed by this, then you are in good company with the scores of the saints throughout the ages of the church who feel and have felt the same way. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1 verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? In Ecclesiastes 3, the writer is surveying life under the sun and he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. In Ecclesiastes 8.11, he says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The writer of Ecclesiastes is observing that the wicked, when they're not brought to account, they can actually be emboldened in their sinning. They may think to themselves, I can get away with this. And so they continue. In the book of Job, the man Job wondered about these same things. In Job 21.7, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? When Job is aware of some of the things that happen, that's something he's observed. How can the message of Psalm 10 help us? Three ways. First, we can see from Psalm 10, it is normal for the people of God to wonder about unchecked evil in the world. It is normal for the people of God to wonder about unchecked evil in the world. Second, Psalm 10 helps us reflect on the wrong thinking that the wicked have in their minds. Psalm 10 gives us much that unpacks the psychology of the one renouncing God and committed to unrighteousness. Psalm 10 is going to help us reflect on the wrong thinking the wicked have. Third, Psalm 10 helps us hear, at the end, the psalmist's confidence in the justice of God. Last week we looked at Psalm 9. I made a comment at the beginning of that message that Psalms 9 and 10 are companions. They are meant to be read together. I want to reiterate that fact. Psalms 9 and 10 are companions and are meant to be read together. And there are a number of reasons for that. I mentioned that Psalm 9 has a superscription. It's a Psalm of David. Psalm 10 lacks a superscription. And Psalm 11 is another superscription psalm. To the choir master of David, Psalm 11 says. Well, why does Psalm 10 lack one? There's a whole series of Davidic psalms. Likely, Psalms 9 and 10, as companion psalms, have one superscription governing both of them. Secondly, there are a number of concepts and words connecting the Psalms. They both speak explicitly about times of trouble. They warn about the perishing of the wicked. They have the notion of the wicked sinking down and being caught in a net. They have language about God's forgetfulness or what they perceive to be forgetfulness, I should add. They have language, these two psalms do, about the cry of the afflicted being heard. A call for God to arise more and more and more. There's a whole host of at least a dozen connections between the psalms. 
But most compellingly, in the original language, Psalm 9 cleverly uses, at the beginning of certain verses, letters among the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 10 selects from the last 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in certain ways to begin verses. And that suggests that Psalms 9 and 10 were meant to be a literary unit together. And therefore, we continue with these two psalms, this pair of companion psalms, by looking at Psalm 10. And we begin with the questions. In verse 1, there are two. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist's questions here are asking something in light of distress. Times of trouble, we would want immediate, proximate help. He's picturing here the Lord standing far away. There's trouble. But God seems to have backed up. If you were looking for aid and you saw a distressing situation and you reached for the one who was to help you and you think, well, wait a second, why are you 10 feet behind me now? You think, why are you backing up in this time of distress rather than drawing near to help? The psalmist is asking this question that in this distress that seems to be ongoing, Lord, have you backed away? Why do you stand far back? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God's a stronghold in Psalm chapter 9. So in Psalm 10, where's the deliverance? Has God taken cover? Has distress erupted and God is the first one behind something safe? Why is he standing and hiding in times of trouble? Especially when hardship is brought about by evildoers, the believer might wonder, where is God? Where is God's justice? Why does this transgression and distress continue unchecked? These are the sorts of questions the psalmist is willing to ask. And it's because the psalmist doesn't understand everything. The psalmist doesn't understand. And so these are the sort of questions that come to their mind. In verses 2 through 11, the arrogance of the wicked is laid out after these questions are asked. In verses 2 to 11, the arrogance of the wicked is clear and graphic. Clearly, in verse 2, the arrogance of the wicked is uh, is evident because of the very word. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursues the poor. The very posture of the wicked is a position of pride. Their pursuit of the poor is done in their arrogance. That means their unwarranted self-confidence. They have a self-exalting behavior and strategy about their lives. Their pursuit of the poor is for what? To help the poor? No. They hotly pursue the poor for what? What could their scheme be? But for the further detriment of the poor, the exploitation of the poor. Evildoers see people they can take advantage of. In verse 2, The wicked look at the poor and they think we can take advantage of them. And so they do. They see someone unsuspecting, someone who doesn't have the resources or legal means to prevail. And they think I can take advantage of this situation to enrich myself. And the psalmist knows that that these wicked are bathed in greed, driven by entitlement. This is not love of neighbor. This is the exploitation of neighbor. It tells us in verse 2 here, the psalmist is calling for their, their being caught. 
The prayer at the end of verse 2. Let them be caught, he says to God. Let them be caught in the schemes they've devised. One of the ways God's judgment works out before that appointed day at the end is in the present, there is a sowing of rebellion reaping present consequences, disaster for the evildoer, strategies that fall apart, plans that rebound back onto the head of the wicked. The psalmist is saying, let them be caught in those very schemes that they've devised. The wicked are schemers. They spend time premeditating evil. They plan together. They get their pieces in place. They've devised what they're intending to execute. This is not spontaneous, rash, evil doing. They commit to it. They think about it. They plan it out. It's a hatred of neighbor. What is it that they premeditate? How to take advantage and commit unrighteousness against others. This is the deliberation of hatred toward neighbor. Devising something to take advantage of others. It comes from their very core. Look in verse 3. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Where does this treatment of neighbor with such hatred and with such godlessness come from? The wicked are just following their heart. They're just following their desires. It's just that their desires are aimed and their heart targeting the weak, the poor, the ones who can be easily taken advantage of. Their soul has dishonorable desires. And they're following them wholeheartedly. They're not ashamed of their desires. They boast in them. It's a point of personal pride. And one of the reasons they exult in their wrong desires is because they perceive it's worth it. The one greedy for gain. Do you see that language in verse 3? So there's boasting out of the desires of their soul, but there's a greed for gain that justifies it in their mind. The heart ultimately is pursuing the wrong thing. Rather than love of neighbor, neighbor is a means to getting what I really want. And whatever I have to do to others and whatever they have to lose at the expense of me gaining, I am most committed to what I can get. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And of course it must be in opposition to the Lord. If the wicked love money, they can't serve more than one master. Jesus tells us this in the Gospels. So if they're greedy for gain, their God is the dollar. Or whatever the ancient Near Eastern equivalent would be here, right? Here you have the commitment wholeheartedly of financial gain. And therefore, what could their heart toward God be but opposition and hostility? This is not a heart of worship of God. You can't love God and money, Jesus says. Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, Psalm 10 is an example of that. Psalm 10 shows us where a love and a a desire, an an unholy desire for, for gain can take you. Renouncing the Lord seems so final. It seems so decisive. So strong. This is not indifference then. This is an absolute recoiling against. 
And in the holiness of God and the righteousness of his word, if the wicked are committed to their unrighteousness, they're not indifferent merely to God's good and wise law. They recoil in disgust. They despise the goodness of God's law and love of neighbor. It doesn't get them what they want. And so they renounce and recoil against it. Love of God? No. Love of neighbor? No. Love of money? Yes. What do I need to do? And who do I need to do it to? In verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked's face that is, the wicked does not seek him, God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Out of his own personal arrogance, the wicked don't seek the Lord and they can't. You can't seek what you are renouncing. You, you, can't, you can't give yourself to pursue what you are cursing and recoiling against. The wicked here, out of their arrogance, do not seek the Lord. There's no seeking after God. In fact, they live as if there is no God. There is a practical atheism that animates their life. They live as if there will be no reckoning. They live as if no one will hold them to account. Now, the end of verse 4 may simply be the psalmist's way of summarizing the thoughts of the people. I don't know if we should imagine the wicked going around simply saying there is no God, but their thoughts demonstrated in their action are such that they have no fear of any God calling them to account. They live as if they're accountable to no one. They're going to live doing what they want, whenever they want, to whomever they want without any fear of consequences. In fact... Their strategy seems to be working as far as certain people might observe under the sun. In verse 5, his ways, and this here is not the ways of God or the righteous. The ways of the wicked are still in view. This is what Job was asking about in Job 21. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes observes in chapter 3 and in chapter 8. The, the ways of the wicked prosper, it seems, at all times. Look at all the power they can accrue and all the money they can cheat and receive. It tells us here their ways seem to work. There's a utility in them. Not because it's based in any real ethical reasoning in honor of God or love of neighbor, but there's a pragmatic element to it. Hey, it works. Gets me what I want. Seems to prosper my ways. According to the wicked, your judgments, the psalmist says to God, are on high, out of his sight. And as for all his foes, he puffs at them. So if God has any divine judgments, it's out of sight, out of mind for the wicked. They can't see them. His judgments are too high to seem relevant. And this seems to be the case with the way many people may hear about the doctrine of God's judgment upon the wicked. Warning about a final day where the nations will be gathered. There's something that might seem remote in the minds of people to seem relevant in the present day. Oh, you know, I can't really see that or put my hand on it. Or how, how would I know when that would even be? And so maybe the distance and the remoteness of it, it, it almost seems irrelevant. The judgments of God here are on high, out of the sight of the wicked. The wicked here are opposed. I mean, there are certainly envious people, covetous people, jealous contemporaries who would want what they want, who would want to steal and kill and destroy the foes of the wicked. He has certainly accrued some of them, but he's not afraid. He puffs at them. He demonstrates and struts and smirks 
He leans back with his feet up, relaxing in his complacent unrighteousness. He doesn't see any ramifications to his actions, and he doesn't see that anybody can do anything to stop him. In fact, he says as much in verse 6. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not mean adversity. If we're familiar with the Psalms, there is an irony to the opening claim there in verse 6 in the wicked's heart. Later in the Psalms, we learn in Psalm 15, Psalm 16, and several other Psalms that will follow that the Lord establishes the righteous who shall not be moved. And the irony for the wicked then, the wicked is ascribing to himself what is only true for the people of God who have God as their defender and stronghold. The wicked have a delusion. Their delusion is, I'm secure. I shall not be moved. I've escaped consequences. In fact, they are so assured of their present security, they don't see any future problems coming down the line. He says, throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Boy, that's confidence. It's not rooted in anything sound or true. But sin makes you think stupid stuff. The wicked boasts in his perceived invincibility. And he thinks no one can stop him. His plans are that sure. In fact, his mouth, unashamedly and unreservedly in verse 7, is filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Not just in the summary of the thoughts of his heart that we've seen on a few spots. Things like, I shall not be moved, or in verse 4, there is no God. Or later in verse 11, God is forgotten, he's hidden his face. The deceit and oppression and mischief on his tongue, the iniquity he commits, are even upon neighbor and not just words about God. In other words, how is he getting away with what he's doing? Well, his strategies and relationships with others are not honest. He's acting in dishonest ways because he knows something that he thinks will work. He's got a utilitarian or merely pragmatic way of deciding what his behavior should look like. He has this particular goal. He needs to use this particular person in this way in order to get that goal. So he doesn't doesn't ask whether it's right or wrong. He's simply concerned of whether it will give him what he wants. And therefore, mischief and iniquity, deceit and cursing and oppression, these are what come from and are the result of his words. He says things that should not be said to do things that should not be done. His speech is dishonorable because his heart is wicked. Paul uses Psalm 10-7 when he's trying to describe the universal condition of mankind in Romans 3. In Romans 3-14... He describes people whose mouth is filled with cursing and bitterness. And the language of a mouth filled with cursing comes from Psalm 10.7. He's already used in his letters to the readers, Paul that is, he's used several excerpts from Psalms that we've seen in our study so far of book one. Paul recognizes that the problem here is a problem in the heart of sinners more broadly. The ease with which we justify false speaking 
and manipulating, manipulating behavior, not because we're trying to love neighbor, but because we want something that neighbor can get us. Something that neighbor is in the way of as an obstacle. So neighbor is not someone to be loved, but an obstacle to be overcome by my deceiving words and by my manipulative ways and my wicked strategies. Paul recognizes in Romans 3 that mankind has a problem emanating from the heart that shows up in our mouths. James recognizes it. In James chapter 3, his letter is very strong in the third chapter about the problem of our speech. He says the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. That means James would agree full on with Psalm 10. The wicked here have this way of talking coming from their heart. And James says, yeah, all the centuries after Psalm 10, the problem is the same. In in James 3.8, it tells us that the tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. The wicked are plotting, careful, calculated. It tells us in Psalm 10.8, he sits in ambush in the villages. Now, sitting in ambush means you're patient and you're waiting. You, you've got a, a target or you're waiting for one to arrive. And you don't know how long you're going to have to wait. And any of you who have ever gone hunting know that uh, if you are waiting for something to come along that you're going to uh, be preying upon, then, uh, then you don't know how long you're going to have to wait. He sets an ambush. And in the villages and hiding places, look what he does. He murders the innocent. His actions are unjust. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. Earlier, his greed for gain is what I think we should inform this verse to mean. He's murdering the innocent. Why? To get something. He's watching for the helpless. Why? Because he can prevail upon them without any equal rival or pushback. He sees what he can exploit. And so he does. Right there in the villages, sitting in ambush, he lurks in ambush in verse 9 like a lion in his thicket. Lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. Well, you've got to behold here the very callous actions of the wicked. You see, the danger of sin that we can recognize even in the Old Testament, that Jesus confirms in the New Testament, is that sin renders us unable to properly love God and neighbor. We have the sinful condition of our hearts. And we need the truth and goodness and wisdom of God's word in order to direct us in righteousness so that our speech and our ways of looking to God and neighbor can be honorable. We can treat one another as image bearers. The wicked here can come across as so callous and so calculating. The unsuspecting they take advantage of. This is a view toward neighbor that's you're the predator and they're the prey. Rather than using authority and resources and power to help the helpless, the helpless become the most easily destroyed by those waiting in ambush. We know this to be true about animals in the wild anyway. Predator and prey work this way. The predators don't look for someone that says, where would be my equal? I'm a predator and I want a fair fight. You know, I'm looking for one of those. No, have you ever watched one of those National Geographic videos? They're looking for the old. They're looking for the young. They're looking for the sick. They're looking for something that they think they can beat and destroy. And God said to Cain in Genesis 4 verse 7, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Sin is personified as a crouching, stealthy predator. 
There was a study done in Colorado several years ago of all, this, all these deer that were being killed by mountain lions. And they confirmed through that study what was widely known elsewhere about predator and prey. That the, de- the deer who were most likely to be killed by the mountain lions were weak and sick. Not strong and healthy. And we ought not be surprised by that. The mindset of the predator. Psalm 10 is disturbing. Because rather than loving neighbor, a sinner has become a predator upon his neighbor. In verse 10, the helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his, the wicked's might. Might makes right. So the wicked think. I'm able to do it. I'm strong enough to do it. I'm clever to do it. And so it's going to get me what I want. And so they do. I mean, is this just not Darwinian evolutionary thinking working itself out among people? Why should they love their neighbor? Why treat a fellow human being with any kind of dignity or respect? If we're just the byproduct of evolutionary chemical exchanges and combustions... Well, the Bible would not have us approach the world and neighbor with that kind of evolutionary and dehumanizing perspective at all. When we read about the helpless crushed, the helpless sinking down, the helpless falling by his might, we're reading about someone who fell into the pit that was set for them. The ambush succeeded and down went the helpless and the wicked prevailed. We hate that this is the case because God has given us a conscience. We're not like the animals. We can recognize in our world, and whether we read about it in books and fiction stories or see it in film, it bothers us when the wicked prevail. When the helpless are mistreated and the weak are beaten down, there's something within those of sound conscience, and even those who would be turning from the Lord in different ways, enough of their conscience remains as an image bearer to where they may have ringing within them. That's not right. But the wicked comforts himself with something in verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. This person believes God has an amnesia problem and a visibility problem. God has forgotten and he won't ever see it if he did. If the wicked seems to get away with his plan, the conclusion he draws is that God must not have noticed. And why? Maybe God's too distracted. Maybe God doesn't see it all. Maybe all this stuff happens around us because God doesn't care. Maybe he can't do anything. Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he doesn't mind at all. Maybe what I'm doing isn't that bad to God. Maybe it's not as sinfully serious as others have thought. Maybe God isn't really righteous. Maybe if I got away with this, I could keep getting away with it. You can imagine the different inferences that people will draw when they seem to sin without consequences. The reason verses 2 through 11 are a fascinating exercise to reflect on in Psalm 10 is because of how many verses the psalmist devotes to the heart of the wicked. What are the sort of things that the wicked believe? What can be the gist of or summary of their heart and mindset about unrighteousness? This is a person who doesn't say, I should repent of my sin. 
I should go the way of wisdom. I should forsake folly. I should love my neighbor instead of dishonoring my neighbor as I've been doing. I should fear the Lord and stop renouncing the Lord. That's not the turn of events verses 2, 3, 11 take. The wicked person doesn't do that. Instead, he thinks, I must be getting away with this. Instead, he should consider that perhaps God is demonstrating patience with him that he might repent while he can. Instead, he treats the patience of God as license to sin. That's the kind of thing sin would lead us to think and justify. Or, maybe the wicked should consider that God has given them over to their sin. In Romans 1.28, Paul says, They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. You see, what's interesting to consider here is the wicked might be thinking, I'm getting away with this, when in reality they are experiencing the judgment of God in their calloused, hardened hearts as they are storing up righteous wrath for the day of judgment. They have been given over to their sin. They are so complacent in it and so numb to righteousness and so neglectful of right and wrong and so using of neighbor for their own greedy gain that they look at any perceived lack of consequence and they think, I'm getting away with this. When really their sinning has caused them to become the kind of person that would justify a life renouncing God and hating neighbor. And they think that's without consequences? Friend, those are consequences of sin. To have a heart hardened to God and hateful to neighbor? Don't you realize that's what sin produces? And in their folly and in their arrogance, they think they've gotten away with sin? Oh, sin has done its work. They need not fear Uh, they, They are not fearing the day of judgment when they ought to tremble before the wrath of God who will bring them to account. See, there's more than meets the eye. There's no getting away with wickedness. You can't commit wickedness without consequences at some level. Our joy in the gospel is affected when we sin. Our taste, our spiritual palate And our minds and hearts is affected when we pursue what dishonors God. Sinning against the Lord and committing wickedness against neighbor does something to us. The effect of sin on your heart and the desensitization on your mind. Friend, aren't those consequences? The remedy to living in rebellion against God is to flee to God as your refuge and stronghold. For he is merciful to all who will come to him. When you look at verses 2 to 11, look at the way the wicked have gone and think to yourself, I must repent of sin and trust in Christ because this is the mindset of those living against the Lord. Friend, if you come to Christ, you will know the compassion of the Lord. You will walk in his steadfast love and the light of his word. You will know the delight and the truthfulness of Of all his wisdom. But if you refuse the Lord. There is no other refuge for you. There is only Christ. 
Don't devote your heart to sin. It will destroy you. When we analyze verses 2 to 11, we realize the wicked, they are wrong. They are wrong about what they think. About what they're getting away with and how it's affecting them and what the consequences will or won't be. Sin will destroy us. God is a righteous judge and sin's promises are lies. So we come to the call for God to bring justice. In verse 12, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. This call for God to arise means for God to act. And it's based in Numbers 10.35 where Moses was told that when the ark sets out for the battle of the Israelites against the enemies of Yahweh, they would say, arise, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. This is God lifting up His hand. Lifting up His hand for what? To bring His hand down upon the wicked. To crush His enemies. If God's people are afflicted, he says in verse 12 to the Lord, forget not the afflicted. In verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? The psalmist is questioning the reasons for the wicked person's arrogance. Why do they renounce God and say in their heart, you won't call to account? They don't believe in some future reckoning. They don't think God will bring them to a place of judgment. The psalmist knows the wicked are wrong. He knows the wicked are wrong because he's called God to arise and to act in justice and forget not the afflicted. The wicked say, you will not call to account. But in verse 14, what does the psalmist know? He says to the Lord, you do see. And the wicked therefore should tremble. So the wicked thought, well, God's judgments are so high and removed. He doesn't see them. Maybe he's forgotten. He's hidden his face. The psalmist says, no, he sees. He notes. He notes mischief and vexation. You ever taken notes? Notes where you are trying to carefully analyze and think through? You note things attentively. You do see, he says to God. You note mischief and vexation. Does it pass the gaze of God? You note it that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. The wicked think God is just sitting idly by. That is wrong. Where is God? Noting the vexation and mischief and rising for judgment. He has been the helper of the fatherless. The helpless commits themselves to God. These are people who would need aid and resource and stronghold in the ancient world. The helpless there in verse 14, better explained by the end of the verse. The fatherless, the orphan, scarcely could you think of a more difficult situation in the ancient world than being an orphan. And the orphan has a defender. If someone was looking as the wicked would be, preying upon someone else as a predator... They could look at those who are helpless and those that are fatherless to take advantage of them. But they will be brought to account by God who is just and righteous. In verse 15, he says to the Lord, break the arm of the wicked. I don't know if you've ever broken your arm. I broke my left arm when I was in middle school. Man, that hurt. And for for you here to be reading God is to break the arm of, and this isn't like, you know, something went wrong with something you were doing, and this, oh, this terrible accident happened, I broke my arm. The the act of breaking the arm is to bring an end to activity committed with that arm. If the wicked are using their mighty and outstretched arm to bring unrighteousness, God is going to use His mighty and outstretched arm to bring justice. 
His arm is going to break their arm. Lift your arm, O God. Lift up your hand in verse 12. To what? To bring an end to unrighteousness. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. How thorough will this judgment be? Oh, the wicked. The wicked think God doesn't see. That he is distracted and isn't attentive. No, his justice will be more thorough than they could possibly conceive. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. What is the basis for the psalmist to pray this way? Verses 16 to 18 are the basis for the confident prayer. The Lord is king forever and ever. Why should the wicked tremble? And why should the psalmist pray for God to bring his righteousness by executing justice in the world he's made? Because the Lord reigns. What hope would you have for justice in the wicked being brought to account if the Lord isn't king? Or what hope could you have that justice would last forever if God isn't king forever? We need the trumpeting news of verse 16 that the Lord is king, that's his supreme reign, and that his reign is eternal. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Language here about land is recalling the psalmist setting. This is David writing in Psalms 9 and 10. And where does David reign? Well, he reigns in Jerusalem. And if the enemies of Yahweh gathered against the people of God and the Lord gives the people of God victory, then from the promised land, the nations would be overcome and expelled. It reminds us of the conquest in the book of Joshua where the warmongering Canaanites fall before the power of God. That's what it means here that the nations are perishing from his land. It's a picture here of how the wicked would say, I shall not be moved. And God says, I will move you. And the wicked say, I shall not face any adversity throughout all generations. And God says, I will be your adversary then. And I will reign forever and ever. The Lord is king. And his supremacy and his eternality are good news for the people of God because he is altogether righteous. And in verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. This is a conviction that ought to undergird our prayer. Because we don't understand everything that happens the way it does. We have questions about why this about the righteous and why this about the wicked. Those are normal questions. What is it that the people of God know? That God is just? That He hears the cry of His afflicted? That the wicked are wrong in the way they think about the world? And it says here in verse 17, not only do you hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart. Well, there's something about turning to God, isn't there? There's something about calling upon the name of the Lord that has an effect on our heart. It doesn't solve all the circumstances stuff, but we are able to again renew in our conviction that God is our stronghold. He will strengthen our heart, the afflicted. Where do they hope? They hope in God. The weaker strengthen and the afflicted find their rock. It's the result of what's happening in verse 17. God is inclining his ear. He's not deaf to the cry of his people. He hears their cry. And every shedding of innocent blood and every act of unrighteousness 
has been heard and will be brought to account by the God who reigns as king forever and ever. He inclines his ear toward what end? In verse 18, the end of the psalm tells us here's the end. It is to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So the wicked, they think they're so invincible. They are but of the earth. It's a reminder of their origin. They are derived, created, made creatures. They are not creator. And the fatherless and the oppressed have a divine warrior who defends them, a righteous judge who hears their cries, and perfect justice which he will execute on their behalf, that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Verse 18 helps us realize then that our proper heart posture to God must be humility. Because we are but of the earth. Psalm 8 does remind us we've been created lower than the heavenly beings to exercise dominion over God's creation. But we are not God. And there is one judge of all the earth and he is righteous. The wickedness that dwells in human hearts does so much damage to the lives of others. When we rebel against the Lord and we act against neighbor, we are not living out what we were made for. We were made to know God. We were made to love one another. And moral autonomy, the rejection of divine command, the neglect of His holy word, the pursuit of just following after whatever our heart wants, It is a surefire strategy to bring folly into our lives. The Bible doesn't tell you to follow your heart. It tells you to follow Jesus. We need to commit ourselves to the wisdom and ways of our Redeemer. Who is merciful to all who will come to Him. He doesn't just lift up His arms for judgment. He lifts up His arms for mercy. Just think about the cross. We can say with David in Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and recount your wonderful deeds. The Old Testament is clear. The Lord is a stronghold for His people. We are glad to affirm that. It never tells us in the Old Testament what the stronghold looks like. You have to get to the New Testament to find out the stronghold for God's people is shaped like a cross. It's the mighty cross where the glory of His saving grace and His perfect righteousness are on display. We say from the Old Testament, turn from sin and find God as your refuge. What do we mean in the fullness of God's word? Repent of sin and flee to Christ. On the cross, he's paid the penalty for our unrighteousness. If we think in verses 2 to 11, yeah, that's been the way my heart and my mind have reasoned from time to time about things I've been doing. Friend, repent and turn to Christ. Find God as your refuge. God will lift up his hands on the day of judgment. The good news for sinners is that in this world, 2,000 years ago, on the scene of Calvary's mountain, the Roman soldiers laid the crossbeam on Jesus' upraised arms. He has lifted his hands that we might receive mercy through the work of his atonement. You don't need to perish. A Savior has been given to us. The message of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ has lifted up His hands so that through His redeeming work, our hearts might be strengthened and our hope might be sure, our sins might be forgiven, 
and our life might be eternal, turn to Christ. He is our refuge. The refuge that is shaped like a cross. Let's pray.